Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. Honestly, how am I supposed to follow two clips of Kevin Beck dancing? I mean, I mean, how how does it? How do you go up from there, Kevin? I don't, I don't know how. I'm not sure how I follow that. But a few years ago, we've we've got some weddings getting ready to happen here for for some of our folks. And as I was reading the scripture for this week and thinking about the position that some of the people found themselves in the scripture, I, I kind of went back and was thinking about: Have you ever been asked? Uh, a question that made you uncomfortable or in a setting where you were uncomfortable or something that was just, it was awkward in that moment and you weren't necessarily sure how you should answer, maybe if you didn't know the exact answer or if you didn't really want the people around you hearing your answer. But I was doing a wedding some years ago and, you know, most of the ceremonies that I do during the rehearsal time, I will tell them, you know, guys, don't, don't get too nervous about this. If there's ever a part in the ceremony that I need or expect a response from either one of you or both of you, I will let you know. I will prompt you, okay? That way you're not in this awkward guessing game. So during this particular wedding, I get to the place in the wedding vows where I say that you will be, and I'm asking the groom for his vows, and I say that you will be true and loyal, patient in sickness, comforting in sorrow and forsaking all others keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live if so please respond by saying I do thought that was fairly straightforward self-explanatory didn't think there was a whole lot of interpretation that could have happened there the groom looks back at me and goes huh <laughs> so just just like from here you got to you know, pretty good little laugh, a little small chuckle. So I'm like, okay, all right. That you will be true and loyal, patient in sickness, comforting in sorrow, and forsaking all others. Keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. If so, please respond audibly by saying, I do. He looks at me. What? I can't make this stuff up. This time, the response was a little bit less laughter, but people still found it funny. (laughs) But the awkwardness gauge was rising. And I'm like, okay, all right, so here we go again. And me, being someone who likes to try to bring a little bit of levity into awkward situations, listen, I've been awkward my whole life, I'm, I'm a friend of awkward, but most people are not. So I go back to the great YouTube video, and I look at him, and I go, listen, Linda, Linda, listen to me, Linda. And if you've not seen that video, YouTube that. It's a little boy who's trying to get out of trouble. And he's talking to me. He's like, listen, Linda. So I do that. And I go over it again. And he looks at me and he goes, can you rephrase the question? We're going to be, we're going to be witnesses to something here. It's not what we thought we were going to witness. We're going to have to testify at some point. And then all of a sudden, he and his groomsmen start laughing hysterically. 
Turns out, the night before, the groomsman convinced him that that would be funny. No, Jordan, okay, no. Austin, no, okay? Whatever you do, resist that urge, all right? That's all I'm saying. But I looked at this and I thought, number one, (laughs) he's going to (laughs) die. Number two, if you don't die, my office hours are nine to four, so you're going to need to be coming back in. But if you ever found yourself in a place where you're going to have to answer a pointed question, and maybe the question that you're being asked isn't necessarily the most comfortable, or you may be uncertain of something, uh, or you may be like this poor young man and just had a horrible lapse in judgment. But if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. And as you're, as you're reading, we're going we're gonna to talk about something from the, gospel of, uh, from the gospel of Mark this morning. And, you know, out of the four gospels, three of them are, are termed the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which means that they're similar. They, they share similar stories. They have a similar timeline. They're told in a similar way. Uh, Mark is one of those that I can kind of appreciate, though, because Mark seems to be a task-driven guy. Mark writes from the place that it's pretty much straight to the point. He knows that he needs to tell some backstory, but Mark is really seemingly focused on getting to the cross and getting to the resurrection. So he doesn't tell, he doesn't take, Mark's not a natural preacher, basically. He doesn't use a whole lot of words to tell a story that could be told in a few words. He tells it pretty much straight to the point. And as we look in Mark chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 27 through 30. Let me get there along with you. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's pray. God, we are just thankful to be here with our family, with our brothers and sisters, uh, with our community, um, being able to praise you and worship you together. God, this is my favorite time, my favorite day of the week, uh, and just being able to spend this time uh, honoring you and praising you. God, we're at a place now in our service where we worship you, praise you, and honor you through your word. And I just ask that for every ear that's here this morning, that's hearing this message, that they would be open to receive what you say, touch every heart in whatever way that they need to be touched. And Father, I pray for myself right now. I ask that you speak through me. Holy Spirit, give me inspiration. Give me words to speak accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a little bit of a picture and a little bit of context to this passage, what's leading up to this is they are in a region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's a city that's about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's at the upper source of the Jordan River, basically. And it's, it's a very lush, very fertile area. And we have this place that Jesus has kind of taken this moment and he's stowed away. Now, we find that 
leading up to this, there's a feeding of the multitudes, you know, Jesus taking the bread, taking the fish, giving thanks, and then them being multiplied and the multitudes are fed. We also see where the Pharisees ask him for a sign, and Jesus denies that. But what we're seeing in this arc, in all of the Gospels that tell this story, is this is kind of what they consider to be the crux of the story as far as Jesus coming into public knowledge and him being known, this is the point where everything seems to shift in the Gospels that's moving Jesus just from this this carpenter from Nazareth, this good man who started a ministry that started doing and making some differences in people's lives. This is now the point that we're kind of seeing that he has become a threat to the religious institutions at the time and the religious leaders. So they are beginning to challenge him. Everything he says, everything he does, they begin to try to entrap him in doing things he shouldn't be doing. So really we're seeing this ramping up that Jesus is no longer just this guy who's leading a little bit of a resistance. He is now becoming a threat to the people. So he comes and he takes this moment, and that's kind of a picture of where they, where they believe that this, this moment took place. Uh, this is, again, you can see it's very beautiful, very lush, very rich, and it's also a place where the god, the pagan god Pan was primarily worshipped also. So I think there's some significance of where Jesus was making this revelation known to his disciples. But he takes them away from the crowds, away from the multitudes, and he pulls them aside and he says, who do people say that I am? Now, I was sitting here, and we all know that it's in the moments. You know, we can have hectic moments. We can have chaos. And some of, those, some of us just call those moments life, right? 24-7, chaos, hecticness, welcome to life. But we also see in Scripture that there are these times that Jesus, no matter how hectic and chaotic things got, that he stowed away to spend some time with the Father because it's in those intimate one-on-one -on -one moments where we're detaching ourselves from the craziness of life of when we really make that deep connection, transforming connection with the Father. But we see Jesus kind of stealing away with his disciples and having this moment. The best thing that I can relate that to is, you know, I, I'm not a grandparent yet and am in no rush Okay, okay, just so we're clear. But the one thing that I have noticed is that it seems like grandparents just really enjoy grandchildren. I heard a comedian say one time that grandchildren are the grandparents' reward for not choking their children when they were teenagers. I think there's some validity to that. I love you, by the way, I love you, okay. But... I, I think that there's a reason for that because I think that while we're parenting, while the kids are growing up, things are crazy, we're, we're trying to make a living, we're trying to pay bills, we're trying to put food on the table, we're trying to get them from one place to the other, we're trying to make sure that everything's taken care of. And I believe that we can, as grandparents, I think that there's a tendency a little bit to, you know, you don't have quite as much hustle and bustle going on in your life and you can really appreciate the moments that you have with your grandchildren a little bit more. And I think that's a tendency of us when we get older. We just begin to learn to slow down a little bit and appreciate what's in front of us a little bit more than what we used to. But Jesus takes this moment and he, he asks this question. So who do they say that I am? 
Out of everything you're hearing, we've been around multitudes, we've been around thousands of people. What are you guys hearing? Who do they say that I am? And in the Gospel of Mark, they say, well, some people say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say some of the other prophets. So that's the answer of what everybody else is thinking. I believe it's in Matthew that they actually mention the name of Jeremiah also. But one thing that we need to notice out of here, there's a couple things in this response that I think that we really need to pay attention to is number one, imagine this, but number one, people couldn't agree on who Jesus was. The people who were not following Jesus, they had an idea, they had a concept, they had an opinion, but none of the, they weren't even really agreeing with one another. Some say that you're John the Baptist because John the Baptist had just recently been beheaded. So they're thinking that, hey, John the Baptist is back. Others say Elijah, because Elijah was never, actual, never actually physically died. He was just taken into heaven and was supposed to come back. So it just makes sense, stands to reason, that you're Elijah. Some people say some, one of the other great prophets in the Old Testament. I think another thing to point out in this passage of Scripture is, number one, the answer of all the others never included divinity. It never included a spiritual, divine nature of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a lot of people and a lot of folks who will say that Jesus is a great man. Jesus was a great man. Jesus did all of these things. He's a perfect example, but he was just a man. He wasn't God. There's a couple major world religions that still teach this, that still believe this. Oh, Jesus was a great prophet. And if you have that mindset in here today, then... Your, line, your, your, your mind is not aligned with the New Testament because Jesus teaches himself that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I think that this morning that this is, Jesus is this morning, he is a question that you must answer. At some point in our lives, Jesus is a question that each and every one of us has to answer of who do you say that I am? Because after the disciples answer this question, he goes on and he turns it around. And he goes, okay, so that's what they say. Thank you for providing that for me. Now, who do you say that I am? Verse 29, Jesus goes, who do you say I am? You see, I think that the closer that we walk with Jesus, the more time that we spend with Jesus, the deeper in the relationship that we get with Jesus Christ, I believe that he expects more from us. I believe that he expects our relationship to deepen with him. And we're seeing here that he's no longer just allowing what other people think to be what their answer is. He makes them own the question. And every one of us at some point in our lives, most of us multiple times in our lives, are going to have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And the disciples' answer is found in verse 29 also. When Peter answers, imagine that, Peter's the one who speaks up. But he answers, you are the Messiah. In other translations, it says you are the Christ. The Messiah is based from a Hebrew word. Christ is based from a Greek word. They both mean the same thing, which is basically the anointed one the anointed one. And this was of major significance back in that time because that had a lot of Old Testament connection to it. 
And it was connected by the way that God chose his kings over Israel. And if we look at those, I want to I show you a couple of them. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. So he sent for him, and this is talking about David. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, this is a continuation in talking to David. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And in my favorite book of the Bible, Psalms, we see this echoed in Psalm 132, verses 16 through 18. I will clothe her with priests, with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. So, Peter's answer here carries a lot of significance because he is recognizing this man that's standing in front of him who's asking him the question, but who do you say that I am? Peter, with this statement of you are the Messiah or you are the Christ, is saying you are the one that God promised all those years ago to our, our ancestors, King David, to the one, the man, the pinnacle of our nation's history you are the one that was promised. The anointed one that was to come from the lineage of David is the one that's standing before me. So what he was doing was he was not only saying that, Jesus, you're a great man, you're a great prophet, which Jesus was. He's also looking at him and saying, you are God. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. So this morning... As we take a little bit of inventory in our own lives, as we look at some things that's happening within us, I believe that Jesus is asking each and every one of us in here this morning, who do you say that I am? And see, and I think for me and for many others, I think that we have answered for far too long the question of who do others say that I am when we're asked that because we have a tendency to fall back on when we answer who he is well this is who my parents taught me he was this is what my grandmother my grandfather the the lineage that came before me the tradition that was passed down to me the stories the encounters the truth that was taught to me this is who you are and Jesus is going that while it may be accurate I'm not worried about who they say that I am I'm asking you who do you say that I am because my parents relationship with Jesus Christ isn't going to get me into heaven your parents your grandparents your family your church history is not going to get you into heaven that relationship is not your relationship at the end of the day what has to be answered in everyone's hearts everyone's minds and in our lives is this who do you say that Jesus is. Emily read that scripture a little bit earlier that because of the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, forsaking the shame. 
Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him. Jesus knew what was coming, even before he was born. And, and, and let me clarify something. The birth announcement of Jesus was not the beginning of Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week in the, in the intro to John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And all things that were created were created through him. Jesus wasn't God's plan B. It wasn't like Adam and Eve fell and then all of a sudden God had this epiphany and said, oh, I need to create Jesus. Jesus was from the very beginning. He was with God and he was God. So all of these things are lining up that he came, he was born, he, he endured humiliation, he endured torture, he endured shame, he endured mockery, he endured all of these things, false accusing, he endured all of these things for the joy that was set before him, even though that he knew it was going to bring pain, it was going to bring torture, and it was going to bring shame to him. He endured those things. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That includes every single person in this room this morning. If you answer, he is the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are my Savior. You're my Lord. You're my God. If that's your answer, then my question becomes, does your lifestyle and the way that you conduct yourself, does it match that answer? Because if he is the Christ for us, if he is the anointed one over everything, then he has to be the anointed one. He has to be the Christ over our entire lives, not just an hour to an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. He has to be the Lord of everything in our lives because he gave everything and he expects everything. That means that he needs to be the Christ in your marriage. It means he needs to be the Christ in the way that you raise your children. He needs, to be the, he needs to be Christ in your workplace in the way that you handle dealings with your coworkers, with your, with your bosses, with those people whom you are leading. He has to be the Christ. He needs to be the Christ as you're sitting at home when no one else is watching, when you're all alone and your character's becoming questioned or that temptation's coming. He needs to be the Christ then. If he's the Christ, then he has to be Christ over all of your life. He doesn't want to be just Christ over this or Christ over that. I have come so that you may have life and life more abundantly, which means that the entirety of your life is in him and in him alone. There are no times. There's no locations. There's nowhere that's an exception to when Jesus Christ needs to be Lord over your life. So this morning, I want you to take just a moment. In these type of settings, absolute silence can be deafening, and it can be one of the most uncomfortable things that you ever experience. But I'm going to ask you to take 30 seconds. I'm not going to talk. 
But I want you to ask God, in your mind, you don't have to do it out loud. Take 30 seconds in silence and ask God for him to reveal to you a place in your life where even though you're saying he's the Christ, he is not Christ over that life. Begin now. Jody, will you put that quote up there for me, please? Eugene Peterson says this, God's great love and purposes for us are all worked out in messes in our kitchens and backyards, in storms and in blue skies, the daily work and dreams of our common lives. God works with us as we are and not as we should be. Or think we should be. To me, that's a relief that we have a Savior who accepts us just as we are. That I don't have to have everything figured out, I don't have to have everything in order to call Him mine and to call on His name. And then He works with us exactly where we are in our messes, in our mess ups and when we fall when we get back up when we're running when we're walking when we're when we're losing ground or where we're making headway God meets us right there will you pray with me this morning father help us that our lifestyle what we do what we say the way we relate to each other, the way that we interact with people, the way that we engage our community, the way that, that we love our families, the way that we operate, God, would answer the question that you are the Christ of our lives. You are our Savior. You're our Lord. And God, I know that there are many areas in my life that fall painfully short of that. God, I am sorry for that. So I ask for myself and everyone else in here who falls short on a daily basis, God, give us strength. Draw us closer to you. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace in my life. I thank you for patience because I mess up so very often. And God, I know I'm surrounded by people who do the same. But God, we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.